Again today with an ongoing fight, money for South Florida's teachers. This week, Governor Ron DeSantis unveiled the $91 billion budget he'll be taking to lawmakers. The education component includes raising minimum salaries for teachers to $47,500 a year. 101,000 current teachers uh, that will see a raise and I think that that's something that will have a really meaningful impact in terms of recruiting and retaining uh, folks. I think we have we're doing all this great stuff with our state universities. I'd like to expand the pool of college graduates who, who, who would consider teaching. The governor has a lot of political capital and he intends to spend some on teacher pay raises but critics question where would that money come from? Also, the fairness of raising pay for new teachers while perhaps shortchanging classroom veterans. All this to be decided by a legislature that has favored charter schools over traditional schools. Those on the front lines are here to weigh in. Carla Hernandez-Matz is president of the United Teachers of Dade. Anna Fusco is the president of the Broward Teachers Union. Collectively, these women represent tens of thousands of teachers Teachers and other employees in South Florida. Welcome. Good morning. Great, Good morning. Great to Thank have you, you both here. All right, I want both of you to weigh in, but Carla, let me ask you. Here is the governor saying a billion dollars more in addition to other millions for teachers so that the beginning teachers can earn 47500 a year, which would certainly move Florida up in teacher pay long overdue. But you have misgivings. What are your misgivings? Well, we don't really know where this money is going to come from. You know, we are almost a trillion dollar economy, the state of Florida, and we're talking about almost a billion dollars, and we're still in the bottom when we talk about per pupil spending. We also have a senator who's the head of the K through 12 appropriations who has bills that are going to take away funding from public schools. So we're not sure if he even has the support from his lawmakers, you, if, they're, if they've had this conversation. You are referring to Senator Manny Diaz of Hialeah? That's correct. All right, well, we'll invite him on to get his side of the story on that. But Anna Fusco, give us your take on this. What are your misgivings? Well, the misgivings are that even though we know we have a, a need for more pay for our teachers and to have our uh, colleges have more college graduates in the education field, 47.5 is a beautiful start salary, but you cannot forget all of the veteran teachers that have been in the system for 10, 15, 20, 25 years that are only within a few thousand dollars of that start salary. You, you know what's, um, I pulled some averages. There's uh, averages given by a number of different organizations. I kind of compiled some. The National Center for Education Statistics say the average national salary for a teacher is 58,000, almost $59,000 a year. Pay scale puts it at 49, Glassdoor puts it at 47. So these minim a minimum salary of 47.5 puts it almost in the national average. To your point, it's a minimum salary not for all veteran teachers. Carla, what's the number? What I want to hear a teacher say, this is my worth, this is my salary, this would make me happy. What is that number? That's a tough question because the work that teachers do is immeasurable, you know, and, and it comes we have children that you know thank us for the work that we do when we see them long after they've come out come from school but what, but what what is is it is it 50 a year you're a 25 year veteran teacher is it a hundred what's the number what is that look I think that this conversation is really important and really good because it, it should be 47,000 to start but we can't cap it at that and not say that we're not going to help the veteran teachers which is to Anna's point you're not going to tell me a number are you 
I'm not going to tell you a number. <laughs> you have a number? I'm not going to box you in. Well, I mean, our veteran <laughs> teachers, they look at it, some of our teachers throughout the other states where they're making $80,000, $90,000 after putting in 20 years. They definitely feel that they should be way over the $75,000 mark after they put in 20 years. And right? when we think about South Florida and how expensive the cost of living is yeah. here, that should also yeah. be accounted for as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Carla, state economists say that they think there's going to be a billion dollars in new tax revenue coming in. So let's just assume for the moment that there would be enough money to do this, to raise teachers' salary. Um, but what about the point that, uh, that Lana raised? What about a teacher who's been there in the system five years, 10 years, 15 years, and is really underpaid? Uh, does the governor's plan account for their experience and pay them additional? It doesn't. It, right now we see a governor's plan that ha has a lot of holes in it. And so that's why we need to continue to have these conversations. We need to make sure that it is uh, fully vetted. Um, we believe that all teachers deserve a raise, not just beginning teachers, especially mm -hmm. our veterans that have been in the system and have um, you know, sacrificed and served our yeah. children and our community for so long. The, uh, the governor's plan really is the first time in recent memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, that puts a lot of money, it is a minimum salary. He's raising the minimum. I think he acknowledged that, that it is a minimum, it is a start. Um, the last contracts for both Broward and Dade, again, correct me if I'm wrong, gave a 2% cost of living raise, is that, is that correct? Right. Which, is, which is essentially not a lot, and teacher salaries, when you adjust for cost of living, are actually lower than That's they were true. a couple of decades ago. Here's my question, the unions, you, help decide that. You sign off on that contract. Why? Well, we sit down at the table and we negotiate uh, from the district's budget what they have allocated um, for salaries and salary increases. And we always push to um, get the most that we can of, you know, at least the cost of living or if not more. And that's what actually Governor DeSantis made clear in his press conference when he was here in Broward about a month ago with, with these veteran teachers. Keep it at the table, which we're, we want it all kept at the table. Fund, fund the budget. And you know, and the problem is that this funding comes from the state. And when the state has underfunded us for two decades now, you see that we rank in the bottom when, it, when we talk about per pupil spending. But what's so confusing too, is it's, so it's, a, it's a district decision. The money comes, of course, right. from the state, but, it's, but the district can, and you, yes, yes, can absolutely. change the calculations and yeah. put money in different but, pots. But when two years ago we only got 47 cents from the state, how do you turn 47 cents into anything other than a percentage? Well, I think that's a good question for the district to answer, right? It's actually yeah. a better question for the state. Why yeah. are they underfunding us? Yeah. Uh, Anna, let me go back to sort of a question about paying a fair salary to all kinds of people because it's just not teachers. Obviously, you have media specialists. Uh, you've got art and music teachers. People who move from classroom to classroom or are running libraries. Uh, what about them? Who, how are they being paid? Well, they're all included in our bargaining unit in Broward County Public Schools. Uh, if you are a certified teacher, Broward County Public Schools considers you a teacher. Yeah. Can they get a bonus? I mean, I know teachers in classrooms that show improvement under the old program could get a bonus. If we're relating to the Best and Brightest program, yes. unfortunately, they have left out many teachers, our pre-K teachers, teachers that are working with students but aren't classified as a classroom teacher where I'm in a classroom with my 20 desks, my whiteboard, yeah. and so forth. They don't consider them in those bonuses, but which I, we were asking that, and actually putting in a demand, everybody should be included if right. you're a certified teacher. Right. And, and to Anna's point, 
it's more than uh, just the educators you know that are in the classroom that are doing incredible work in our school systems and so if we're going to talk about public education and making it strong and making it the best in the nation let's be inclusive of everybody and everything that happens in our public schools so are you okay with the, the thought of a bonus not not in lieu of a salary raise but as an incentive is that a is a is a bonus program a good thing that's what they've yeah. been doing for the last 10 years yeah. mm -hmm. and it hasn't worked so I believe that teachers deserve a raise, just like everybody else in every other profession deserves a real substantial base salary raise, and then we can talk about bonuses. Let me change the focus in the minute or so we have left and ask you, uh, what do you think, what do your teachers think about the program on Friday? The Miami-Dade County School Board uh, said, let's consider beginning classes, elementary schools, no sooner than 8 a.m. and then later for uh, middle school and high school. What do you think? Look, I think it's something that we're definitely looking into. We're collaborating with the district, trying to figure out you know, what the research indicates. The fact of the matter is that our schedules are over 100 years old. Our school system was based on agricultural needs right. when school started. And so what's going to be better for children, for them to learn to minimize those achievement gaps, and what's going to be good for the community? It's going to be a long conversation. It's going to be tough, uh, but we're willing to have it to see what's good for everybody. Wait, why, why is it a long conversation? Sleeping late <laughs> is a good thing. Why, what is the complication? There. Sure, but uh, you might have parents that need to get up early and go to work. Uh, okay, and so <laughs> to re reconfigure everyone's Your lifestyle. Your Miami traffic. <laughs> That's right. You know, yeah. Miami and traffic then, is 24 hours a day. That is. Okay. Yeah. Anna Fusco, Carla Hernandez-Matz, so great it. to have you come in. Thanks. And as this goes before the legislature, we'll ask you to come back and sort of give us your take on where it stands then. Can we throw in real quick, uh, January 13th, we're having a big uh, Red for Ed rally and tally and educators, community leaders, community parents, everybody that's involved in public schools. Good. We're asking everybody to show up. We're expecting 20,000. Well, local time will be there too. Thanks so much. It has been another tumultuous week in the <laughs> wonderful world of news. So now we want to try to make some sense of the biggest stories of the week. And no better way to do that than with our roundtable. And we have a great group with us today. Some introductions. Chris Smith is an attorney in Fort Lauderdale with the Trip Scott Law Firm and a former Democratic state senator from Broward. We are glad to welcome Liz Alarcón to the roundtable. She is a political analyst and social entrepreneur, also leads Pulso, a digital platform reaching more than 400,000 Latinos in the U.S., former Fulbright scholar. Welcome, Liz. And glad to always welcome back Rafael Yaniz, attorney and political analyst. He serves on the board of a National Foreign Affairs and National Security Political Action Committee. A lot of brain power at the table Boy, today. Good morning. Good morning. Hi to all of you. you. Great to have you here. Let's begin <laughs> with sort of the breaking news and Chris Smith as a former, the only one who ever had anybody put, you know, a X next to your name. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Michael Bloomberg announced today he's going yep. to run for president. Uh, what about his strategy, about his candidacy? What do you think? Well, he's the most interesting uh, person getting in now because when you look at it, he'll pull from everyone. I mean, he'll pull from the moderate side. He's uh, going to pull from Biden. Yeah, he's going to pull from Biden, but his stance on guns and his and some of his social stances will pull from the progressives also. So I, I don't think he's I don't think he pulls like you know to get into the top four or top three, but he'll get in and he'll he'll take from everybody in the race. Everybody will give up a small percentage to him. Now it'll be my new percentage because I don't think there's enough time for him really to to get into that top four. But he, he's the one person you can say 
everyone will be affected by him entering the race. So he doesn't have enough time, but he's got a boatload of money, and money overcomes time, do money, you think? Money talks, and, <sighs> and he's made a $35 million ad reservation, an ad buy for his nascent campaign. He's starting hired, tomorrow, right? Starting tomorrow. He has a ton of political candidate um, consultants on payroll. He has the money. He has the luxury because of his money to get in this late. However, all his skeletons are starting to come out of the closet. So we have all yeah. these stories about Bloomberg LP being run like a frat house and the Me Too movement dynamics where he made some very unsavory, uh, yeah. poor choice of words and comments about women in the workplace. That's all. He's going to have to answer that if he makes it to the debate stage. You know, the, the money is one part of it, but he's the second billionaire now in the race. And <laughs> yeah. we have seen, even after the debates last week, that Tom Steyer is not doing so great, right. even with all of the purchasing power that he yeah. has in the race. But Tom so. Steyer doesn't have Bloomberg's name. He has this old media true. company. Yeah. <laughs> Liz, you know, a, a week ago today, Bloomberg tried to kind of uh, roll back something he that was a cornerstone of his uh, mayoral ship in New York, which was stop and frisk. 87% of the people who were stopped and frisked were either black or Latino. Uh, and now he says it was racist and a mistake. Do you think he can kind of make it up with uh, people in those communities? No. I think it's too little, too late, and I think we can say that for several other candidates that are on that stage. And uh, I, I think this is actually a distraction to some really formidable candidates that we already uh, have uh, in the race and don't see viability for, for him moving forward. Well, you know, the reason, according to him on his website this morning, the reason he is in the race, because he said he wasn't going in the race, yeah. the sole reason was because he doesn't see anyone who can beat Donald Trump. That is his sole reason for getting into this race. The, the one thing on Michael's point is that Bloomberg doesn't have an intervening um, issue. Um, when you look at how Biden, it came up how he treated Anita Hill. And so those started coming up uh, when you talk about his stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. uh, but Biden was able to point to, okay, well, I served with Obama. I was, you know, I was right there put aside as Obama. So he had something to kind of buffer him. Bloomberg doesn't have anything to buffer him from stop and frisk. He's he got his he philanthropies. Yeah, many people he helps. But he hasn't served in office. I mean, from the time he was in office and you had stop and frisk front and center, he hasn't served in another office capacity where, where he, he can make another that. decision. Yeah, Raphael, right, yeah. the, the other thing that is so unusual about his candidacy is that, all right, so he's going to spend $37 million this week more than any other yeah. candidate has spent so far, including, I might say, a million in the Miami market. Yeah. Uh, we don't vote till March 17th. Right. But, but, you know, here's the point. He, he, he's a admirable, interesting man, uh, and yet how does he fit into this if he doesn't take part in the four first primaries. He's not going to be in New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, or Nevada. Right, he's missed, those ships have sailed, but he has the money and the name ID and the attention of the media in order to suck the oxygen out of the room. So Michael Bloomberg, I, I wonder, I wouldn't call him a kamikaze candidate because I think he's too smart to do that. I think Michael Bloomberg is very intentionally going through the motions to elbow people out of this race and maybe let someone who's more electable, such as Joe Biden, rise to the top. You know, Liz, you had mentioned money isn't everything, but money can help Bloomberg define himself because opposition mm -hmm. research has started and, right and here and at define, the table and define, his and define others. Importantly. So, so Michael Bloomberg defining himself, even despite not being in any of the debates so far, not showing up in the last four. What do you think that's going to do when 
push comes to shove and people look at the field and say, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a president lover, I want to vote against Trump, what did the, how important is that going to be? It's going to be crucial mm -hmm. if he is going to have a fighting chance for my comments earlier, which I have serious doubts of if he actually will. We'll have to see how strategic he's going to be. And with which other candidates is he going to align himself? We know that there will be a presidential ticket. And so is he going to run this as if it were a primary, as, sorry, as if it were a general election mm -hmm. race and circumnavigate yeah. the primaries and act as if he were the candidate? I think that might be something that he yeah. is going to try. A minute ago, you said there are some very strong candidates already in the race. Who are the strongest mm -hmm. candidates? Well, we saw that last week Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and uh, Joe Biden had a lot of speaking time during the debates. We're yeah. seeing that Buttigieg is rising in the polls. Uh, where but Biden, excuse me, Biden stumbled several times in that debate, did not exactly mm -hmm. inspire feelings that he had just turned 77. And he, you know, a lot of people felt he, he should have done a lot better. He was not considered a winner. I will definitely give you that. But I think the poll num numbers still show that he yeah. is a front runner. And we're seeing uh, that Buttigieg Warren battle have them mm -hmm. kind of battle for that third spot. Let's talk a little bit about the debate on Wednesday night between 10 candidates, four moderators, two hours. Whoa, you know. Mind <laughs> oh. alone. But there were some really kind of interesting and I think challenging and fun moments. Here's one of them when Cory Booker sort of took on Joe Biden on recreational marijuana. This week I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> Number one, I think we should decriminalize marijuana, period. And I think everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out of jail. Their record's expunged. It'd be completely zeroed out. So what about that exchange, Liz? I mean, it was kind of fun. Cory Booker got off a good line, and it did show that, although he's entitled to his view, Joe Biden is out of step with most Democrats and maybe most Americans when it comes to legalizing marijuana. It does sound uh, like some of the lines that my fellow millennials have been saying, okay, boomer. Um, <laughs> I, I think that was one of those moments. Uh, yeah. I think that he has continued to show that he is teetering uh, during this election cycle, and, and we'll just have to see if he can recover. You know, it was an interesting line that Joe Biden came out with. He is part of the Obama coalition. He comes, weigh in on that for me. I, that was weird to me. I get where he's going with right. it. And he does have a lot of African-American support, but that was strange to listen to. Well, I guess you have to really take a little look at the word coalition. <laughs> so yeah. I guess we, it, it, since it was coalition, everyone was a part of. But I mean, he, he is struggling hard to make sure he keeps those Obama bona fides because um, as you see with Iowa and New Hampshire, I don't think he's gonna do as well. His firewall is South Carolina mm -hmm. and possibly Nevada. So he has to keep those Obama bona fides to keep the African-American vote in South Carolina because if he doesn't win South Carolina, I think it's over for him. And so he has to do whatever he can, whatever, whatever he has to do. And when you talk about the, you know, the marijuana with the millennials, you get a little way, you lose some millennials on that. But remember, the, the, I've always said, 
my number one voter was an over 50 African-American female. Yeah. And they're not voting based on marijuana usage, but if you see his comment was letting people out of jail. Criminal justice. Now they're thinking about their nephew, their grandson, yeah. their son in jail. So that gets yeah. again to that most reliable African-American voter, that over 50 black female. Wasn't the boomer generation sort of the marijuana generation? Undercover. Undercover. Talking about Woodstock. You know, it was a, my, um, my impression of Elizabeth Warren, you know, she's she's really trying to navigate this, how are we going to pay for her Medicare for all? And the tax on the wealthy has been a thorn in her side with so many people. And now she's framing that as, hey, it's two cents and your first $50 million, billion is free. And, and she's really trying to show that it's not going to be the cost that people who are fearing paying more taxes so is that working her proposal has to live or die in the u.s house of representatives and then in the senate so her her whole plan uh, she's getting knocked because of the tax on the wealthy and in the united states people uh, hear taxes and normally that makes people mm -hmm. cringe uh, for right reasons and and so she is really walking a tightrope right now because she has a name id she's trying to push out bernie for, for her own reasons. She is one of the savviest campaigners on the trail right now, and I think she's severely underestimated in her Iowa operation, according to my friends on the Democratic side uh, in the know, her Iowa operation is something to, to be afraid of if you're any other candidate in the field. Yeah, you know, uh, Chris Smith, I think that it, what is resonating with her wealth tax is the fact that there is in this country a sharp divide between the very rich yes. and a lot of people in the middle class and certainly with the poor, none of whom have enjoyed the benefits of the tax bill of two years ago or the general increase in the economy, the boom in the economy over the last 20 years. So I think there are a lot of people who are saying, if I'm ever going to move up, buy the house that I've tried to buy, educate my kids without huge student debt, you know, maybe some kind of tax on corporations and the wealthy is equitable. I think one of the most important narratives that have, that have come out in the last couple of years is when Warren Buffett talked about paying less taxes than his secretary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that resonates because there's a lot of secretaries out there, there's a lot of truck drivers out there looking at the boss man who's the millionaire, and here's one of them saying, I pay less taxes yeah. than you. Yeah. And so that's what makes it that's what makes but it resonate when she goes, says that. That goes not to the amount of taxes, it's how the taxes are are, are assessed and structured because <laughs> Uh, typically the wealthiest 1% are being taxed on long-term capital gains, not on income from a salary from right. a 9 to 5 job. So that the disparity that you hear about the taxes is driven down. You have to get into the weeds on this issue. You know, we, talk, we talked about the wealth tax, Michael. The, the issue here is that it sounds nice because so many people are not in that upper 1%. So they say, okay, what's an extra two cents on the dollar allegedly to the wealthiest people, to a Jeff Bezos? But let's, let's also be fair right now to President Trump, who does a horrible disservice to himself in terms of bringing up the low unemployment numbers, record lows, record low unemployment numbers amongst yeah. minority populations, amongst women. Across the board, the economy, he should be coasting to re-election just on the economy, but he can't yeah. seem to take the foot out of his mouth. And Wall Street is at record highs, so well, all that China would deal. seem to redound in his favor, but he keeps sort of saying things like... Uh, uh, sending out tweets about uh, the you know the foreign service officers testifying before Congress. So, and Liz Alarcon wanted to have an addendum as we were talking about 
the poor criminal justice and the debate. What was your point, Liz? Just to give you another one of these, Michael, uh, to talk about a <laughs> candidate who was not on the debate stage, Julian Castro was trending on Twitter even though he did not make the threshold for that debate. And he has brought to the forefront many of the issues that we've been talking about here today, yeah. many of the mm -hmm. issues that the candidates on that debate stage have been uh, talking about as well. And so as the only Latino candidate in the race, he's an underdog, but I think that he has moved the conversation in an important way and has been an important voice throughout yeah. uh, this entire process. So if he's moving the knee, uh, moving the voice, why isn't he moving the needle? Why isn't he getting the donors? Why isn't he rising in the polls? What's that disconnect? I think it's a catch-22, right? Do you get the media coverage so that people get to know you better and then you go up in the polls? Do you start with the polls and then get more coverage? He is polling really well among Latino voters and black voters. He's top four according to a Latino Decisions and Univision poll. So I think if you look towards uh, uh, communities that are not often yeah. spoken to, he, he's doing pretty well. Yeah. If we can, let's move on to, well, it's all related, the impeachment inquiry this week. Rafael, all together now, over the course of two weeks, 12 basically Foreign Service officers, members of the, the White House staff, National Security Council have testified. And as I listen to all the testimony, they have corroborated the account that essentially was in the, um, the, the rough draft released by the president of his July 25th conversation. So where does this take us? Because no Democrat, no Republican in Congress has said, yeah, okay, you've convinced me something wrong happened here. The most underreported, I think, major development from this week was during one of the 40, <coughs> after one of the 45 minute um, Democratic led question and answer sessions, uh, Ken Starr was live on Fox News and he said, <coughs> he, he did a 180 from before the testimony to that first commercial break. What did he, say? That he said impeachment is going to happen. And so at the end of the day, impeachment is going to happen. Everyone sees the writing on the wall. When you listen to Chairman Schiff, uh, Adam Schiff from California, chair of the Intel Committee, you know that impeachment is where this train's destination is going. Uh, well, all right, so the president kind of knows, and he said on, tweeted on Friday, I want the trial. The GOP yes. has never been more unified. Chris. Well, in, besides, all the facts are there. So now I think we move into, is it an impeachable offense? Mm -hmm. I think there's no more dispute. The president used taxpayer dollars to get a personal favor. That's what they're all going to for. Allegedly ask for, ask for one. Well, to ask for, he used taxpayer dollars to ask for a personal favor. So that, so now is, Democrats are saying, you know, that's impeachable. That's bribery. Um, if I'd done that as a state senator, say, I'll vote for your bill, you know, if you give me money, uh, you'd say, get rid of him. So now it's a decision of Republicans and Democrats, and I think the majority of the Democrats, or all of the Democrats, are going to say that's an impeachable offense. Well, okay, so to, to repeat, the president said, bring it on. Right. Give me the trial. Let's go to the Senate. Well, he, he says, he, the Republican messaging on that from the senator's powwow with the president on Friday and, and hunkering down was just... Everything we they claim that everything the Democrats have been doing has been shrouded in secrecy. They don't know who the whistleblower. The Republicans don't know who the whistleblower is. They can't question the whistleblower in public, and the Democrats um, have their own rationale for how they're handling the impeachment proceedings. So the president's team says, let's get a trial out in the Senate. The danger of having a trial out in the Senate is the Chief Justice sitting alone runs the trial in the Senate chambers. The senators then have to overrule any evidentiary decisions that the that Chief Justice John Roberts, appointed by George W. Bush, 
very conservative, even though he, he sided with Obamacare and that was a thorn in the side of the Tea Party movement and those conservatives, John Roberts will be making decisions based on the law and applying the facts to the law or the law to the facts. It's a very dangerous slope for the Republican senators to yeah, then but, overrule the sitting Chief Justice. Yeah, but Liz, yeah. as we all know, it takes a two-thirds vote in the Senate to convict and from everybody, the counting that we see, there isn't a two-thirds uh, vote in the Senate to convict the president. And that's the numbers game that we're playing right now. How many Republican senators are willing to choose country over party to be able to go forth and, and vote with their conscience to a truth that we yeah. all that we all know? Vote with your conscience. Good point on which <laughs> to end. I want to thank you all. Great, uh, Great to have, to have you here. We'll have you back soon.